This is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. The Bible story of the Tower of Babel explains how all the world's languages arose, and many cultures have similar origin stories, but they don't answer the scientific question of how new languages actually emerge and develop. A team of three researchers set out to simulate that process with an experiment. What they found is that young children presented with a barrier to communication can construct a language in less than an hour. Joining me now is the lead author of that study. Manuel Bon is a postdoctoral researcher at Leipzig University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's start with how you actually define a language. I mean, we all have a pretty intuitive sense. You know, in particular, if we could understand each other, we're probably speaking the same language. If we can't, we're not. But uh, at a slightly more technical level, what are the, the ingredients or the components that are required to say, yep, that's, that's a distinct language? That's actually a more complicated question than um, <laughs> than you might think. Um, now, on the kind of on the one hand, um, a language is kind of a conventional communication system that people of a certain group use. Um, it's something that is specific to a certain group. It has certain words that people in this community use to talk about things. It has a certain kind of grammatical structure. So it's kind of a narrow definition of a of a language. And there are roughly six thousand languages on the globe at, at this point. What do we know about how all of those different languages emerged? I mean, we, we know, you know, some of them are in families and related to each other and maybe when they arose, but that actual process of how they emerged, how much do we know about that? Not very much. I mean, and the main reason is because we can't travel back in time and go to the go back to the, the times when these languages actually emerged. Fortunately, there are kind of some situations um, or some constellations in the in, in modern times where new languages have arisen, um, though these languages weren't spoken languages, but signed languages. So Manuel Bon, you wanted to get out of the realm of just observing as new languages happen to arise and actually get into the experimental realm to figure out how that happens, more than nuts and bolts. So where did the idea for this experiment come from and, and kind of what shape did it take? Yeah, so the, the original idea was um, that we were always fascinated by these studies looking at the emergence of new sign languages. We were like fascinated by this and how much this can tell us about the actual process of language evolution and what, what goes into it. However, kind of the, the downside of these, um, these kind of natural experiments, if you want to say, is that um, people kind of started documenting them at a certain point in time. And what we were really mm. interested in are the very beginnings, like the moment when two people meet that don't have a, a shared language, how do they communicate? Um, and then right. how do they start to communicate? How do they establish reference to things in the world? Um, and then how does that kind of communication system that they, that they invent on the spot, what does it look like? Uh, and how does it change over time? Does it pick up some of the features that we know from language? How quickly does that happen? So that was kind of the questions that we asked. And the idea for the study was, um, so actually the, the idea to do a study like that was floating around for a long time in the lab. But then at one point we, we were on a Skype conversation and then we... We, we thought like, well, hey, this is actually a way we could do this. Um, um, we could just simply put kids in a Skype conversation and turn off the sound. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that was our idea. And um, um, especially we, we wanted children to communicate in a way um, that wouldn't allow them to use their already established languages. So even if you had um, children who don't speak the same language, I think they would still talk and probably pick up hmm. um, each other's language uh, on the fly, at least kind of in a, in a very narrow range. And so we wanted to avoid this and really kind of get them to communicate in a way that, that they've never done before. Hmm. Okay, so then you've got the communication barrier there. Um, then how do you give them the 
impetus to communicate. I mean, I imagine you could stick two kids on either end of a Skype connection. They can't talk to each other and they just kind of wander away and say, all right, well, I guess we don't talk to each other. So what kind of you know activities or prompts do you give them to challenge them to actually try to communicate? Yeah, so, so we build up, we actually build up a, a connection, so a kind of communicative interaction um, before we turned off the sound. Um, so we involved this in a, in a little co- coordination game where we had two children in the separate rooms uh, and their task was... Um, to communicate the content of pictures. So we showed them pictures, and one child had to communicate to the other child what's on the picture. It's like a game of charades, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, and that was the game that we're, they were playing, and then at some point we, we turned off the sound and tell, told them to continue playing the game. And did it continue to look like charades? <laughs> um, yes, so, so kind of the, the initial steps, I mean, the, then the challenge that you're confronted now is with in this situation where you know what to do, you kind of have... You know what, that you have to communicate to the other person, but you don't know how. Um, and then the question is, how do you establish reference uh, in a situation like this? Like, how do you refer to something in the world um, if, you don't have a, if you don't have a word for it? Or if you have words for it, but you can't use them. Um, and then, mm. of course, um, the, the strategy that children resorted to and what, what we would do in, in a similar way is using gestures and kind of iconic gestures. So miming the actions that they previously um, talked about, um, now they would mime them. And this would give them a kind of a natural connection to the things that they're communicating about. So kind of anchoring the reference somewhat in their kind of shared experience of what hammering looks like or what um, eating looks like. Right. But there are some things that that definitely pose more of a challenge. You can hammer if you have that shared reference of what it means to hammer a nail in. But when you get to more abstract concepts like nothing or for that matter, something that's more of a sentence, you mentioned earlier, the need to develop Mm -hmm. grammatical structures. I mean, what did they do when presented with these more complex challenges? So it's kind of, with this coordination game, what this allowed us to do was that we could always kind of insert new pictures um, and kind of have them communicate about new things. And at some point, we, we actually did insert an empty picture to have them communicate about nothing um, or emptiness or white. Um, and children used all sorts of strategies. Um, um, some of them were successful, some of them weren't. But the, uh, the thing is that you just need one instance um, for it to work in order to establish a kind of a, a shared sign for, for this abstract concept. So there's right. just kind of lovely example of, the, of one diet where they were, were faced with this task and one um, the kind of communicator child was trying out all sorts of stuff. So they were um, like pointing to white stuff in the room, um, <laughs> trying to put their palms up like stop or nothing. Um, like nothing, none of that worked. And the other girl was actually um, asking questions like, is it a bicycle? And no, it's not a bicycle. Um, shaking, the, shaking her head. Is it the hammer? And while she was hammering, the other child was um, not, again, shaking their head. And at some point, um, the communicator child just pulled their T-shirt to the side and pointed to a silvery white spot on her shirt. And that dis- did the trick for the other child. For whatever reason. And the interesting (laughs) thing was um, when they switched roles, the the child that kind of previously understood um, understood the gesture, when when it was her turn to communicate, she did the exact same gesture. Now, the difference was there was no silvery white spot on her shirt. She had a red shirt, and she just pulled it to the side and pointed to uh, the spot where previously um, the white spot was on the other girl's shirt. So kind of what, what happened here is that within this kind of one instance, they established, a, okay, this is our sign for nothing. Um, and it had a kind of a, um, a referential connection to something in the world in the first round, but the second round, totally abstract, completely removed from, from what, it, what it refers to and could have only, can only be understood within this specific diet. But nevertheless, it worked, totally worked fine for them. 
maybe gives you some insight into some of the quirks in any given language where you go, huh, why did somebody think of that? Or why is that the word or the phrase? And it may just be that by total fluke, it worked once and it, and it kind of stuck. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's kind of what communication is about. It's supposed to work. No, nobody cares how it works. <laughs> it just has to work. <laughs> uh, just, if, you, if you can find a way to get your, your message across, that's all you need. Um, and with the grammatical constructions, um, they started kind of spontaneously developing these like proto-grammatical construction when, we, when they had to suddenly com um, communicate more complex meanings. So what we did here is that um, we introduced um, new pictures, but this time the pictures didn't all have different things on them, for example, a hammer or a bicycle. But this time it was the same object, but with different properties. For example, you had a small hammer and a big hammer. And now mm. in this situation, it's really, I mean, you can mime a small hammer and you can mime a big hammer. And that's what, what actually a lar um, large amount of children just did. So they developed basically a new sign for um, a small hammer and a big hammer. But some of them, um, they started kind of going one step further and they created their own little sign for small and for big and for hammer. Um, and uh, kind of the advantage of the, the sign, if you have a separate sign for small and big, is that you can kind of recombine this with other, um, other gestures. So you can communicate about a small ball, a small bicycle, and a small fork um, uh, just by, by combining um, your, your sign for, um, for small and your sign for, for fork or for ball. Like words in a language, you can kind of flexibly recombine them and communicate new meanings. But this type of communication only emerged um, when the messages they had to communicate got more complex. Well, Manuel Bon, this is one experiment. Uh, I wonder how much you can extrapolate from this to start to say, okay, what are the steps? Are there uh, shared, common, repeatable steps that get you from no way to communicate with each other to something that we might recognize as a language? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, this is, this is one experiment. And I think the the one thing that we can do, that we can do um, with this experiment is kind of provide a plausible way in which this can happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that it happened that way or that it will happen that way if, you, if a new uh, language would emerge, for example, but at least it provides a plausible way in which this could happen. And to what extent um, this kind of mimics an, an actual historic process um, is kind of an open question. Um, I don't know if we will ever be, answer, be able to answer this, but, but at least kind of we can provide a plausible way in which you can, you can think about um, how a new language can emerge. Were you surprised by how quickly the children were able to do this? Um, yes. <laughs> to be honest, yes. Um, but what surprised me even more um, was the variability. So mm. the, the, all the different ways in which they, um, first of all, the, kind of the broad variety of gestures that they invented for the individual objects, that was astonishing just to see so much variation. Um, and, and on the other hand, also in terms of the grammatical constructions, because you might imagine that um, what they would do is they would kind of use their native language as a blueprint and then just fill in the, like, re re replace the words with gestures and then end up all with the same structure. But that's not what we saw. So um, they used word orders that were all over the place. So sometimes, um, so, so in German, um, as in English, you would put um, the predicate before the noun. So you would say a small duck. Um, right. And so you would expect the children to kind of first gesture small and then gesture duck. But that's not what we saw. Um, like some children did that, but um, a large number of children also just started with the duck and then put small in the back. Um, so there was just so much variation in, um, within children and between children in what they did. Um, 
that was that was really astonishing. I expected them to be much more on the yeah, much more similar to one another. Manuel Bon, any good science raises as many questions as it answers. What are the some of the the new questions coming out of this experiment? I mean, one of the pressing questions is, of course, how would this translate to other contexts of data collection? So we tested German kids. How about kids with a totally different um, language background? But then um, kind of another interesting question would be, how how does that change if you um, if you now think about kind of transmission across generations? Because there is evidence showing that if you transmit a language across generations, it actually becomes more structured and easier mm. to learn. And and so this would be really interesting um, to see um, how this would change over time. That's Manuel Bon. He is a postdoctoral researcher at Leipzig University and lead author of a new study shedding light on the process by which new languages are developed. Manuel, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Up next, you eat a balanced diet. What about your social diet? Living Lab Radio continues after a short break. <laughs> 